Well, we appreciate the prayer by Brother Robert, and we pray that a continued interest in your prayers this morning for Brother Steve as he stands before everyone and also here at Mount Carmel. I don't see Brother Kilby here, so David and Brother Edmund, we need to remember them as well. In March, I started talking from John chapter 3. And over the course of time, as I've been given opportunity, I have opened up to John chapter 3, and we've brought a series of messages on the subject of the new birth. And since I'm the king of redundancy, I'm warning myself not to go over everything I've previously mentioned. It's impossible to do that anyway. But... It's easy to do it and sometimes needful to do it. In studying Hebrew, and anybody who reads the Old Testament is studying Hebrew because you're reading the Bible, and in many cases, redundancy is just another literary tool by which things that are said are amplified twice or more times. It's called a Hebrew, a Hebraism. So to be redundant is not necessarily a bad thing. Hearing the same things preached week in and week out may be in some sense redundant, but often necessary. And so, with those thoughts, I want to share with you some more from John chapter 3, the Gospel of John. But I want to start in such a way that we're, we're going we're gonna to further. We're going to start further down in the chapter, and avoid talking about Nicodemus per se, other than to say that Nicodemus is experiencing something here, the night in which this is taking place. This is a conversation. This whole third chapter is a conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. You know, all all of this have a way of understanding what's happening to us, spiritually speaking, intuitively. That is the most dangerous thing in the world. We, ex- we try to understand our experiences through our own personal understanding. This, from the Bible standpoint, is a dangerous footing. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 3, we read that, "...lean not upon thine own understanding." In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Psalms 143 and verse 8 is another prayerful, beautiful psalm. And the psalmist cries out, calls me in his prayer in the morning. He says, calls me to know the way I should go. Why is that? Well, Jeremiah answers the question. He says, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now, that's kind of a horrific admission to say that we really don't know how to go from here. But what that basically is teaching us... Now, note that we do the walking, but the Lord insists that we look to Him for direction and for guidance. The child of God understands that the Lord is the director of the affairs of his life or her life. And the, the, the quicker, I say the quicker, the sooner we understand that in our lives, we can hold on to that kind of godly wisdom, the better off we will be. 
Anybody here can look back in their life and understand exactly what is going on in a spiritual sense, in their experiences, sometimes are misled we don't know. Well, how is it that we can know? How is it? Well, the Bible is a plumb line. Amos says that it's a plumb line. It's the way by which we interpret what's going on, what we see, what we experience, not only around us, but in us, in us. What's going on with the way we feel? And we need to be very careful and cautious to come to any conclusions as to what we ourselves are experiencing or other people experiencing outside the Word of God. I'll take an illustration from another preacher who once stood before the people and held a stick behind his back. It was a crooked stick. And then he had passed the paper to everybody in the, in the pews and said, okay, I want you to draw me the picture of the crooked stick that I have behind my back. Okay? And for as many people there are here, you could have that many different pictures of a crooked stick. But now, I'm going to hold a straight stick behind my back. There's only one way to draw a straight stick. The Bible is the straight stick by which we measure everything in terms of our experience, in terms of our understanding the way the world is operating, what's going on inside me. Nicodemus is confused. Nicodemus has been taught he's measuring everything by the crooked stick of religious tradition. Somebody says, well, he should have known better. Well, you and I should know better as well. Because almost everything we understand comes through filters. Some of you have been tinged, if you will, by religious tradition. You've been brought up in a certain tradition, and you're prone to a certain filter by which you understand everything. Sometimes there's other traditions like worldly traditions. Paul would call it the rudiments of the world. Sometimes we look at worldly traditions and we measure everything by that. But the best tradition, according to the Apostle Paul, is a sound biblical tradition. A sound biblical tradition. You may be sincere this morning, but you may be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is really not the most important thing you can have. Soundness is. You might be affectionate this morning. You might have a love in your heart and affection, which is good and wholesome, as Paul had for Timothy, but not at the expense of the affirmation of the truth of God. And this is always the bewildering aspect of uh, our walk in this life as we deal with other people, especially in the church. You know, we have to be affectionate, but we have to be affirmative toward the truth. We must stand on the soundness of doctrinal truth in the word of God. Of God, because that's the plumb line, and by that we measure what we believe. Are we sound or are we not? What's the Bible say? And I know this is really unique. I tell you, today, I say unique because today churches are making it a, an apparent fact that uh, we love Jesus, but we don't need the Bible. We want Jesus, but we don't need doctrinal truth. Doctrine divides. Okay? And so that's the kind of world we're living in. Well, Nicodemus is seeing everything through the filter of a religious tradition. It reminds me of another individual that I love in history. And I'm going to point him out this morning in maybe a way or two. Only because that he fits the bill of somebody who is steeped in ignorance through religious tradition. And that man is by the name of Martin Luther. Now, many of us a month ago were remembering a lot of 
being said about Martin Luther because it marked 500 years of him nailing the 95 theses or convictions or criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany, what today is referred to as Germany. Do you know Martin Luther, he was born in a time of what we refer to as the Holy Roman Empire. And there were churches scattered throughout Europe, but they were only Roman Catholic. There were no Protestant churches. And whatever Baptist churches existed, they existed undercover in the cloak of darkness in somebody's house, unknowing to the authorities. Because the authorities, the worst thing you want to hear at your door 10 o'clock at night is a knock by the courts of the Inquisition. That might be the last time you see your loved one. For, some other, for, for no other reason, for no other reason but the suspicion that they are not following in lockstep their holy Roman Empire. They were called the dark days, the dark ages, the days of powerful religious influence. Very powerful. You know, prisons in those days weren't like the prisons today. When you went to prison in that day, you were unheard of. And what little food you did get, it would dwindle away eventually where you would starve to death. And if your loved ones didn't know where you were, I mean, Paul the Apostle, when he was in prison, he cried to Timothy, bring me the cloak, bring me my parchments. You didn't bring food to a prisoner, they would probably end up dead in those days. Much different picture than today. Anyway, it was a period of time which was steeped in ignorance. Martin Luther was a young man born in Germany, or that area. I don't know if it was called Germany at that particular time. I doubt it was. But he was, his father intended him to go to law school. He was a brilliant young man. And to the law school he went. But on the, a particular night, and I can't go through all the details in this. It's probably the one of the... Martin Luther, in terms of the man himself... There's more written about him than any other individual in history. So whatever you gather from me this morning, you can take and you can expand on it with detail. But steeped in ignorance, designed to go to law school, and went, eventually goes into philosophy because he's, you know, he's mindful of the, the, the philosophy and interested in those kind of studies, and was, didn't have no interest in being a monk. No interest at all. Until one particular day, night, I don't know, when he had an episode where he was on his horse and it was a storm and there was a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt came out of the sky and landed so close to him that he fell off his horse and was hurt. And so he cried to St. Anne that if she would deliver him, he would devote himself to the monkery the rest of his dying days. And so... In the nutshell, he was delivered, devoted himself, he joined a monastery, and through a life of ascetism, or deprivation of the natural flesh, he devoted himself to serving God from that standpoint, in a monkery. You know, when you went to the, the monastery, the Augustinian monastery, you didn't go there to learn the Bible. No. You didn't go there to read the Bible. You went there to read and to learn the traditions of religion. It was years later when Martin Luther would get the advice, if you want to know something about the truth, you have to read the Bible for yourself. 
and he took it. And it was an amazing, um, momentous event in his life because he finally was learning and reading the Bible for himself. And then, of course, eventually went on to be a teacher of the Bible in Wittenberg at the Bible University there. But that experience led him into a life of absolute duty and devotion in serving God. But there was a key problem that followed him through these early years. This key problem was that he knew himself to be a sinner and in trouble with God. And so later on in his experience, when he and one of his uh, uh, protégés went to Rome to finally visit Rome, they traveled. I think it took him 30 days to get to Rome. You know, he was in awe of the Roman Catholic Church. He was in awe of it. He wanted to be the best monk that monkery could have. He was devoted to it. He tried to serve God in whatever way he could. The problem was that he had this issue. And the issue he had was his heart. He felt his depravity. He felt his his sinnerhood. No matter what he did, he couldn't get over this. He couldn't feel forgiven. He couldn't feel justified. He had this plague in his mind that said, how can a man who was born of a woman be just before God? How can that be? And that plagued him. He would, he would eventually go to Rome, and there he would climb those steps, the Scala, Scanta, whatever they're called, the Holy Stairs. And these stairs are basically marble. They claim that they are the steps that Jesus ascended to Pilate in the judgment hall that were returned to Rome in the 4th century. That's what they say. That's what they claim. But anyway, they have these stairs, and every time these long set of steps... And, he, and pilgrims from all over the world would travel to Rome and they would, you know, seek absolution from their sins by doing something. And you can identify with that. You know, you know, sometimes you feel like you're a sinner, you messed up, you did wrong, you feel like you had to do something to get right with God. That's just a natural tendency. We want to do something to get right with God. Genuflect, you know, the sign of the cross. I don't care what it is people do. But anyway, that's works of righteousness, which in God's eyes are filthy rags. means nothing to him. Okay? It won't get you any further along in satisfying the depraved heart that you feel. Well, this is where Martin Luther was. So anyway, he's going up the set of these steps. He's kissing each step as he goes on his knees. Every time he gets to each step, he's saying a prayer, uh, uh, pray, uh, you know, our Father, you know, heart in heaven, or he's some prayer. He's recanting every, or, or, or recurring every step of the way. And he finally gets to the top, and he looks back. And I don't feel no better. I don't, I'm still feeling myself a sinner. He didn't get anywhere, in other words. And that basically was the sum and substance of a, of a large part of his experience And uh, we highlight him, you know, what really made him popular was the printing press and those 95 theses. Because all across Europe, people were feeling the same thing, but didn't have an avenue of expression, didn't have the instrument of knowledge, didn't have the record of how God deals with sinners and answers those inner questions that all God's people have by virtue of the Holy Spirit being in you. 
And that's where we're getting back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus was in a situation where his understanding was clouded by the religious tradition of Judaism in that day, which was so far removed from the Psalms, from the law, from the prophets, that it did not recognize their own Messiah. He came to his own. They received him not. They rejected him. They were completely obscure. The elders that sat in the position of authority were far removed from what they were designed to be. See? And you can see the hostility between the religious rulers of the day, which ultimately led to the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. I mean, this is really profound when we read the Gospels in this case. Well, all that is going on and clouding the minds of many of God's people throughout the ages. Many of God's people. And we pick up with this idea here, and I want you to remember those words as we present our situation here from Nicodemus's standpoint. He had mentioned now uh, the idea of being born with Jesus, talking to the uh, Nicodemus, talking about you must be born again. You've got to, in order to see the kingdom in verse 3 of John 3. And then he says in the uh, fifth verse, he says, uh, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit or you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so we discussed the cleansing last time, our spiritual washing of the new birth, in particular from the Old Testament perspective last time we were talking about this. What I didn't mention and is the idea of seeing and entering. And somebody asked me just recently, said, is there a difference between the two? You know, being born again. Uh, is there a difference between seeing and entering? Well, there is a unique difference, but they're really the same thing. And it happens at the new birth. So again, wherever we are in our experience, notice this. To see something in the Greek is literally to know something, to perceive something. It's a revelation. I have the light. I can see. I can understand. That's evidence, isn't it, of something? Well, to enter something, notice this, happens at the same time when a person is born from above. That's what we're talking about. And, but it, it's describing another something. So, in one sense, being born again is being enlightened by God's grace to understand the truth. In another sense, when he says, without being born again, you cannot enter, he's talking about an action. He's talking about something that we do. And so, part of the new birth not only includes an awareness in our mind and in our heart, but also an action whereby we come. All that the Father giveth to me shall what? Come to me. And so coming there is the effectual call. In other words, an action we take place by the power of the Holy Spirit by entering in. It's an action. In other words, the Lord's people are made willing in the day of His power. God's people aren't brought in to this wonderful banqueting house of God's eternal love like a robot, like a zombie. We're brought in as children and we see the light, and we cry through the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. So we are brought in. That's all that those phrases refer to. But as we go into uh, this particular chapter, we underscore the importance, the importance of knowing the fact that the regeneration of God, the new birth, is a 
a soul work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I refer to as the stepping stone of the new birth. I've had all these little words that started with the letter S. And I couldn't find anything for instrumentality or the medium except stepping stone. It's just a picture that the sole agent of the new birth is the Holy Spirit. And we've gone through a little bit of that. In the, in the three chapters later, in John chapter 6, we can read about how the Lord himself says that my words, he said, my words are life and my words are spirit, spirit and life. That's the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the agent of the new birth, the spirit of God. Now, this is played out and we talked about that in a variety of New Testament texts, but I'll just lay that out for you because it's one of the most prominent features or points that identifies primitive Baptists from others. It's just simply the truth, but it's conveyed throughout the scriptures. God's Holy Spirit writes in your heart his law without the aid or use of a man. Now, when that comes is secondary to what I'm trying to convey. The actual when that comes may come at any time. You may be sitting in the pew. You may be in the womb of your mother. You may be on the cross, as in the thief of the cross, right? I mean, when that happens is secondary to what I'm trying to convey, and that is how it happens, and that is through the regenerative power of the Holy Ghost. And one of the greatest texts that we can use for this to, to, to support that is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which is really dealing with another subject called conversion. But what it says is true. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. It's only then that we understand, that we have ears to hear, that we have a heart to receive. And why is it that we highlight this? Because the Bible highlights it. The Lord himself highlights it. And it gives all the credit and honor to God. And it doesn't put any credit or honor on man. Now he says that in addition to this fact that he is the stepping stone or the medium or the agent of the new birth, we also have here the sound of the new birth. In other words, whenever we see the effects of the new birth, we're seeing something that has already taken place, something in the past tense. We've talked about that as well. But notice this in verse 8, because that's what I refer to as the sound of the new birth. When he says, the wind bloweth, where it listeth, and all that word means is pleases. The wind blows where it pleases. Everybody understands that. Nobody controls the wind, right? And so what we're saying is, he's talking about the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. When it comes, whence it comes, whither it goes. I mean, nobody can control the Holy Spirit. So it's, it really fits like a hand in glove with this idea of the agency of the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration. That's why even in the womb, John the Baptist leaped for joy through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's why the man, the thief on the cross, who was gnashing in his teeth 
against the Lord in the beginning ultimately stood for his defense because something changed in his heart. And we call that the effectual call of God when God borns again an individual. And then what do we see? We see the evidence of it. We see the wind, right? In terms of we hear it, the sound of it. We can't see it, excuse me. Be careful here. We hear the wind, but we can't see it, right? We, we can't see the spirit, but we see the effects of it. That's all he's saying here is he says, the wind bloweth where it listeth or pleaseth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Who am I to dictate who this, you know, this action of the Holy Spirit? That would be profoundly stupid to think that I have control over the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of the Spirit being sovereign is, I could use another word, like irresponsible. That's a word that we would use for a, a wayward child. You're being irresponsible. In other words, in that connotation, it's not a good thing, is it? What are we saying? We're saying, child, you're answerable to me. I'm your parent. And when you do something contrary to my wishes, you're disobeying me. You're being irresponsible. That's a bad thing. But it's saying that you're completely sovereign and you're not answering to me. And so the Holy Spirit is really the only agent who is irresponsible, if you will. He answers to no one. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same way. He's irresponsible. So we see that in the scriptures because he's sovereign. I mean, he can sit in the boat and the, the winds are blowing and all the, you know, the apostles are scared stiff and he's fast asleep. Why is that? He's sovereign. He's independent. Nothing moves him. Nothing moves him. In fact, I got a great illustration for this, just for your, as a note. Over there in John chapter 11, you remember when Jesus approaches the, the, the grave of Lazarus, remember he wept? He wept. Now, you and I, when we hear about news, see, we're not irresponsible. We're very dependent. I mean, you can start weeping and then I'll start weeping because you're moving me. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says he wept. But if you look in the Greek, fascinating. The scripture says he moved himself. He moved himself. You see, all the Jews that were weeping for Lazarus, they didn't move him. He moved himself because he's independent. He is irresponsible. He's sovereign. And nothing, whether it's the winds or the waves, can move him. It's an amazing feature that's demonstrated in the Gospels. That's why he said, you can't take me. I voluntarily give myself over to the powers of darkness. You have no power over me, you see. And when they sought to seek him, he vanished out of their sight. Powerful. He's the creator of the universe. When they reached to grab him, they said, actually, this is what happened. They said, are, you know, are you the Christ? I am he. And what happened? They fell backwards. The power invested in the sovereign creator of the universe was walking the sin-cursed earth. And men knew it not, but they saw the evidence of it. They saw the Lord of glory. A powerful imagery there. Anyway, the wind... Sovereign wind, independent and irresponsible, does what he pleases. Now, you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell whence it cometh or whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. 
that is born of the Spirit. Martin Luther, you're demonstrating something. You have a despisement of yourself. You're demonstrating something. You're demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the effects of God in the heart. God's written his law in your heart, and it's condemning you. There wasn't a, pre- a Baptist preacher around preaching to Martin Luther, was there? And so anyway, we judge the experiences of God's people, even though they may misjudge themselves. We use the plumb line of the Word of God to describe and to illustrate what's exactly going on in our lives. And so I turn down to Isaiah chapter 4, because we're going to look at the new birth, again, from a historical perspective from an Old Testament perspective, one in which Nicodemus himself should have known, right? He should have been aware of it. In fact, in the verse here, Nicodemus is actually kind of like scolded by the Lord Jesus when he says in verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. He's telling Nicodemus something. He said, Nicodemus, you're not receiving the witness of the law of the prophets. You're not receiving the witness of Moses or of the Psalms. He's not saying there in that verse that, Nicodemus, you're not born again. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is your mind is clouded by the ignorance of religious tradition. I'll tell you what, this is great for our young people who are searching for churches. Our family members may be interested in what's going on in other churches. I'll tell you, when you go to a church. You know what you should be interested in? Not religious tradition. Not worldly tradition. But biblical tradition. Biblical tradition. I want the unadulterated, pure truth of God's Word. I remember a time when I was pastoring at Columbia and a dear woman came in. She's been attending now for some time and she's looking up above me. This big blank wall space up above the pulpit at Columbia. And I finally asked her, what's going on? She says, you need a big crucifix up there. And, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my, you know, see, she grew up with a certain religious tradition. And without these symbols and these ornate objects to convey something that she feels outside of her experience. See, she's she's looking for something that fits her religious experience. And I've had many occasions like this. And I said, no, no, we don't want that. That's an instrument of torture. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, would you take the knife that slayed your mother and hang it around your neck? The cross is an instrument of torture. Oh, yes, we glory in it in the sense that it's the work of Christ displayed. But we don't take the instrument and highlight it. Make it significant in that sense. You see how we're not necessarily attuned to religious objects that other people adorn Anyway, Nicodemus, you should have known something, but you've received not the witness of the truth. I was at another place not long ago. I mean, this was about a year ago. We were not here at Mount Carmel. I felt, Brian, we got to take you to church. I think I shared with you this one experience. What, what are people? What are churches doing nowadays? They got to bring something in the rudiments of the world, more traditions from the world, to mix in the world and the Bible to make people feel welcome. So they're bringing in now Halloween, Halloween. 
All Hallows' Eve. Okay? That's when old Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the chapel door was on All Hallows' Eve. Okay, that was just the day before All Saints' Day. And if you're a Roman Catholic, you know what that all is. You know, we're not going to go into it. But, you know, it's crazy to think they're bringing in something new when it's really something so old, it's antique, it's archaic. That's what people do. There's nothing really new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Stick with biblical traditions and it's fresh. It's new. It's reviving. It's, it's wonderful. Notice now as we go to Isaiah 4, as we talk about this withering work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what I mentioned to you about uh, spiritual cleansing in, in the previous time that we gathered together. This washing of regeneration. While there's a second aspect of it, we really didn't even touch. But yet helps us understand what's going on inside us. Because the Lord does all this miraculously. And it helps us to get to the answer is how can a just man, excuse me, how can a just God, how can a just God fellowship with a condemned sinner? I'm not talking about eternity in heaven when we'll be made perfect, right? I'm talking about now in this time world. Okay, and we in, in, in Isaiah chapter 4, notice this. It says, and I'll just read a few of these verses. It'll remind us what we're talking about here. And at verse 2, it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Remember what we spoke about, the roll, the heavenly register, if you will, whose names are written in that book by the hand of God, as God himself determined from before the foundation of the world. You've been included. We're not talking about the membership role of the church. Now watch this. And the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof. Now we had mentioned that in the washing of regeneration, the spiritual work of regeneration. But notice something else here that is included in this great work. He said... By the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And so here we have the agency of the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth as he puts himself, the Lord's Spirit, in each of the heart of his elect according to his own timetable. But he's referring to it as a spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And so... What we have here is really an Old Testament definition of what Paul's speaking about in Romans chapter 7. When he's talking about how he serves God after the inward, after the inward man, he serves God through, by his mind through the spirit that came by virtue of the commandment in his heart. But he's talking also about the difficulty because of the nature of the flesh, which is warring against the spirit. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that he's got these laws now that are written in his heart. And one law is the law of God, whereby he serves God with his mind. But then he said he sees another law, 
in his heart a law of antagonism, a law of rebellion, a law of hatred. And he said he didn't know when he had this law in his heart until after the commandment came, after the power of the Holy Ghost came upon him. Now he realizes this, that there's something going on in me and that the sin he does is no longer I that do it, but this flesh in which I am in. And so he concludes, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So that subject in Romans chapter 7 is right here in Isaiah chapter 4 when he is speaking about this spirit of God, this spirit of burning. Now, fire in the Old Testament is used in many cases for cleansing. You know, when you take alloys or metal, if you will, and you burn it under severe heat, what rises to the top? The dross. What goes on in the heart of God's elect when the Spirit of God enters is this dividing and this conquering, this spirit that divides the, the new heart from the old one, if you will. And all of a sudden, there's this, this frustration. Martin Luther's climbing the steps at one particular time when he does his first Mass, he lifts, he lifts the chalice for the first time. And he says the words that's supposed to change, you know, sub, sub, uh, what, can I have that word? There you go. This magical word that the priest would say to change the wafer that's dipped in wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. And Martin Luther is doing this and saying, what is this? Who am I? You know, he's being condemned in his heart. That what he's doing is nothing but foolishness. Where does that come from? It comes from the spirit of burning and the spirit of judgment. Right here. Look at Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, a parallel passage. And we're going to move quickly because my time is fast leaving us. And Ezekiel chapter 36 is another key scripture that denotes this. Now watch, it gets to be a little bit more elaborate. This is coming after, of course, the spirit within your heart, this new birth. And he says, then, verse 31, shall you remember your own evil ways. All of a sudden, he's looking to a period of time in which the people of God will remember their own wickedness. This is the spirit of burning. This is the spirit of judgment. Over in John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ says, when the comforter comes, he will reprove men of sin. That word reprove means convince or convict. It's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in your heart, whereby you know yourself a sinner. When you beat upon your breast, if you will, like the publican. And the Pharisee, remember? The publican smote upon his breast with his head down. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of burning in the soul. Martin Luther felt condemnation. You know, when he read about the righteousness of God, he said the good news. He's, you know, he's talking about the good news of the gospel. And this is the way Martin Luther at first thought. He said, my goodness. He thought of the righteousness of God as something that condemned him. 
you know, he didn't have all the truth. Ultimately, he would learn. But in the beginning, when he looked at the good news of the gospel, he felt condemned because he felt far inferior. He couldn't measure up, you see. And a lot of God's children were steeped in ignorance, don't have the release and the relief and the wonder of being delivered. When the, when, when the, when, when the uh, brethren, I'll call them brethren, they were there from all parts of the known world at the time in the day of Pentecost, and they heard the apostle preach, the apostle Peter preach, and they were pricked in their heart. They had this burning in their heart. You know what they were guilty of? They said, men and brethren, what must we do? What must we do? Well, they were part of the generation that crucified the Lord. Some of them in that room were probably hailing on Christ with their voices, raising their fists, crucify him. They were part of the mob. Some of them were guilty of putting the Lord Jesus to death. And now they felt something in their heart by the spirit of burning. And they wanted to know, what can I do? Well, thank God that the work was already done. But in order to receive peace with God, all they had to do was repent. Peter said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And they entered into the rest granted them by God's sovereign grace, you see. And so the spirit of burning, it just conveys this. Here, notice this. I'll read the whole verse and then we'll get, get on back to John 3 because I want to close with some great stuff. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. And of course, as we read further, Remember, the Old Testament is graphic language that conveys New Testament truths. And a lot of this is situated back there. It's concealed, right? It's concealed. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But we understand it in light of the New Testament truths. And so, uh, you know, what goes on and what continues on is the promise of something that is beautiful. And this is the part of the new birth that the Lord is conveying to Nicodemus when he speaks about entering into a kingdom. Talk about coming into the beauty and the wonder of Mount Zion, a spiritual heavenly kingdom available for God's children here. You see, what would it be? What would it be if God just said to Martin Luther, well, I'm going to just keep you where you're at? You know, and I'm sure many of God's people have been steeped in ignorance through religious traditions till the day they died and never had the light of truth shine in their heart and always under 24-7 condemnation of their sins. God says, I got something better for you. Just like he did for those folks on the day of Pentecost. Repented of their sin and walked into, if you will, the newness of a life of joy and happiness in the Holy Ghost. Because that's what Paul says the spirit of, king, of God's kingdom is. It's love, joy, and peace. And for those of God's children to be always woeful and mournful under the withering work of the spirit have not yet reached Canaan's land, if you will. 
the land of fruit and milk and honey, the land of, of enjoyment and satisfaction. Many of God's people toil under the working of their own efforts trying to please God and have never entered into the spiritual rest, the holy Sabbath, if you will, of God promised to all those who believe. Now, I don't think Nicodemus got all this that night, but I believe it shook the very ground in which he walked. I believe Nicodemus ultimately would, as many of God's people do, because the light of God's truth shines degree, line upon line, precept upon precept, further and further, greater light is given. This is part and parcel of the work of the gospel as we learn and as we grow in the knowledge and in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to back to John chapter 3, we notice a few things here, and I'm going to touch on them. I'm not going to go back there, but I'll just touch on them to convey what I'm trying to say or what I've said up to this point. He said, Nicodemus, if I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What we're talking about this morning is really heavenly things. Spirit of burning, spirit of judgment, iniquities. What are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual things, things that go on in, in our own lives. Remember, experiences are understood in the light of God's Word. Why didn't he believe? Because he was mystified, mystified, if you will, by religious tradition. <clears throat> You know, part of that verse 8 really speaks about the mystery of the, the Holy Spirit in our lives. The mystery of it. But I'd like to isolate that from, and this is a thought I just caught. It's not mystical. It's mysterious. But it's not mystical. Okay? The wonderful birth. Now notice what he says here in verse 13. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Of course, this is the one in whom Nicodemus has already mentioned who had been sent from God. We recognize that you're a prophet of God. You're a teacher come from God, verse 2. No man can do these works unless God be with him. We know that. But the, here is the Lord speaking himself, concerning himself, when he says, no man has ascended up to heaven. You see, the Lord is saying that I am the instrument of regeneration here. And everything we try to do is our attempt to try to ascend into heaven on our own. And it's not right. It's a falsehood. And Nicodemus, you can't ascend into heaven. Martin Luther, you can't ascend into heaven. You can walk up the steps, but you're not ascending into heaven. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is that one who came down from heaven and who ascends into heaven, the Son of Man. Now he has this symbol here in verse 14, which is going to enlighten Nicodemus further to what it means to be under the spiritual judgment, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. This is right here in John 3. Everything we've mentioned about in Ezekiel 36 and in Isaiah chapter 4 is right here in our text in John chapter 3. And when you realize this, 
I mean, this is what he says. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, he's drawing Nicodemus now to an analogy or an illustration in the Old Testament that is so profound, it's unbelievable. In fact, many people use this as a reason to suggest that we're in command of regeneration. It's what we do, what we say. Because we just simply have to believe, they say, and we're regenerated. You know, this is the whole movement, the born-again movement, that took place, really became prominent in the 1970s, in the 1960s, and 1980s. The born-again movement, okay? Well, they have a misrepresentation of what this text is saying because they fail to look back in Numbers chapter 21 and verse 9. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And they come to the conclusion, okay, all you got to do is look at the cross and be saved. Well, the analogy comes back from an Old Testament experience of when the children of Israel disobeyed the Lord and there was a terrible disease that inflicted them. And so Moses was instructed by God to erect a post that would enable this brazen serpent to hang. And everyone who was bitten, notice the words, and looked upon the serpent was healed. That's the illustration that the Lord reminds Nicodemus of. It wasn't the people that caused this bitterness of heart. It was the serpent that caused the bitterness of heart. The serpent with its bite. It's very inclusive, isn't it? I mean, if, if, a, if, a, if a snake uh, with venom that's deadly bites you, that poison goes inside you and it affects you entirely and almost instantly. Well, the Lord here is liking himself to the serpent who bit those disobeying children of Israel. And by looking at the brazen serpent, which is another analogy of Christ on the cross, they would be healed from the disease that affected their heart. That's what the analogy here is. The Lord Jesus Christ is that serpent, if you will, that sends the bite, the venom, into the heart of the elect and causes them to feel their loathsome heart, their wickedness, feels that there's something going on now, this, this, this new spirit in their hearts that's warring against the flesh. All of a sudden, they're in an entanglement that they can't find relief. They need help. They need deliverance. Martin Luther needs deliverance. And he gets it. He gets it by the record of the truth when he realizes that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that righteousness of God was not there to condemn him. It was there to teach him that Christ and his perfect righteousness was applied to his account. And thereby he stood just in the sight of God in spite of the fact that he could cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am. You see? Paul in one place, in the second epistle to Timothy, says to this young preacher, he said, I, my conscience is clear. 
You know who said that? Paul the Apostle. He's the same guy that said, I'm the chief of sinners in one place in the other, uh, in the first epistle. But now says that I'm, the ch- I'm, been, I'm clear. David would say something like, you know, Lord, judge me by the integrity of my heart. It sounds like it's so out of place. Because David, though he, he, he was a man after God's own heart, was nevertheless a sinner. And he realized that we can see it in his life played out. But he says, Lord, look at the integrity of my heart. Search me and know me and try me to see if there be any wicked way in me. What is David saying? What is Paul saying? How can he say he has a clear conscience? It's the same thing that Martin Luther eventually said of himself when he was delivered by the gospel truth and realized it was the Lord Jesus Christ who saved him. He looked upon the serpent and he received healing. He himself didn't do it. But it was through the gospel record that he believed. See, it's through faith that David received the blessedness. It was through faith that Martin Luther embraced what God had for him and brought him out of a personal condemnation inflicted by the serpent's bite, you see. And so when we think about the new birth, we think about the inner workings of God's Holy Spirit in the heart of an individual. The joy and the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, and peace, and all those good things, is also tempered by the anguishness of the inner iniquity and the, the heightened idea that we are now sinners before a thrice holy God. And now it's 12 o'clock. And we're just getting to the point where I really like to, but we're going to save that for another time. Because we're going to look at, and I thought I was going to finish today. We've looked at the stepping stone. We looked right. We looked at the serpent. We looked at the spirit of burning. All these denote the new birth. But what follows from verse 15 and on to the end of that conversation, to the end of that chapter, deals with the source of the new birth. And what is the source? It's the love of God. For God so loved the world. So he's going to tell Nicodemus, this is beautiful because we got it all wrapped up in one. The love of God is greater far than tongues of men or of angels, right? We sang to him, that thou the ocean be filled with ink, yet it cannot contain, the scroll itself could not, you couldn't write the love of God, though the sky was a parchment made, right? It's so broad, it's measureless. And then in that same... John 3.16 is not a salvation, eternal salvation text. It's an assurance text for the believer like Martin Luther. For God, what, what is he saying? He's saying you have no condemnation. You will not perish, but you have eternal life. That's what the condemnation is later on. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is Romans chapter 8 verse 1 to them which are in Christ Jesus. Coming right off of Romans chapter 7, in that great chapter where Paul says, O wretched man, of who's going to deliver me from the body of his death? He says, he says it right there. And so, the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of an individual is not finished, listen, in terms of our enjoyment and in terms of our freedom from condemnation 
until we embrace the faith of God's elect. And when we embrace the faith, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can stand tall, spiritually speaking, and enjoy the blessings provided us in Christ. doesn't mean that all your problems will go away. It doesn't mean that the sinfulness of your own heart is dissipated. Martin Luther had more problems in his life from that day forward than he had up to that point. He was hounded, not only by his own heart, by his past, but by others who now wanted to seek his death and his demise. Friends, I tell you, the beauty is that the Lord Jesus Christ has not left us without the witness of the gospel of truth in giving us the opportunity here in this time world to be delivered from those sins that hang over our head, that condemn us in our spirit, that will not let us go, but yet under the power and the precious truth of the gospel and through the faith of his elect, give us the means whereby we are set free from the bondage of that sin. May the Lord bless you this morning.